If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's our main text this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, today's title is The Joy of Giving and Receiving Word and Sacrament. As we learned last Sunday, the church is called to minister to its sat. And as the word of God is given and instructed to you, you're called to take that and to bless one another with the word of God. And the focus this week is on the word and the sacrament in the life of the church. This means uh, the means to ministering to one another is through the living word of God preached, proclaimed, but also practiced as well. Practiced and given to one another. God incarnates himself to the body through word and through sacrament. It is through this discussion today that we learn more about who the church of God is, who the church of Christ is, and what she's called to do, how it is further that she's called to function through word and through sacrament. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress, what that means is a supporter of the truth. We are to be an embodiment of truth in a world of lies. The church of Jesus Christ is a pillar and supporter of truth. So really today, Pine Grove Community Church is a pillar and supporter of truth. We are called as shepherds to protect that. We are called to promote that and to live in and through that belief. It affects how we behave also with one another in the household of God. It affects our relationships. So there is a giving and there is a taking of God's word. God incarnates, dwells among his church through his revelation. This requires giving God's word and also accepting it too. A large part of today's discussion is going to be God, Eve, the word of God. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training up in righteousness. Last week was really about that, how we are called to, in Ephesians 4, build up one another for the work of the ministry, right? This is how the church is the pillar and the supporter of truth. The body is set straight and effective by God's word, by all of God's word. The whole counsel of God being preached and practiced. So the church rises and falls on preaching and giving and taking the word of God. When I was in seminary, um, out in Holland, Michigan, for some classes, one of the presidents of one of the other branches of the denomination was talking, and he said, there are parts of the Bible that I don't teach because I don't find them helpful and relevant. Well, what we just read was, all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's all about Christ. Every page of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. The Reformers taught wisely that there were three marks of a true church. Three marks of a true church. The first mark of a true church was an exegetical church, a church that exegetes the Word of God. Exegeting God's Word. Many, as I uh, may have joked before, read the Bible narcegetically. It's narcegesis. They see themselves on every page of the Bible, not Christ. These are people who say, well, the Bible means this to me rather than letting the Bible change them. They see only themselves, not God. God's word is breathed out by God, and it is for God's glory, but also for our good. 
The first mark of a true church is where the word is preached carefully, where it's preached powerfully, and where it is also accepted. I have been tasked with the joy of teaching not only on the primacy of God's word in the life of the church, but also the sacraments as well. The second mark of a true church is where the sacraments are served carefully, currently according to God's word. The sacraments are a visible sermon illustration of the gospel in baptism and in the Lord's table. They were left to the church to strengthen us, to remind us often of our need for atonement, our need for Christ, that he is the one who effects salvation through his word. The third mark of a true church, which we're not going to talk about today if you're wondering, and if you were keeping track, there's a third one, is discipline. We're not going to get into that today, but that is the third mark of a true church, where discipline is maintained. That's Matthew 18, that's 1 Corinthians 5 involving sexual sins, and then in the book of Timothy and Titus, sins of the tongue are two shots. Matthew 18, you can go over and over to a brother and plead with them to repent. But the holiness of Christ is what's at stake in all three. The glory of God is shown in all three. So the first two marks are today's main point of the message. Read with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 13. The word of the Lord says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but that we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, but God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We exalt you, our God and King. We praise your name forever and ever. Every day we praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness none can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and we will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and we will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And Lord, you are trustworthy in all your promises and faithful in all you do. 
You, Lord, uphold all who fall and lift up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all you, your people, look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. So give us the food of your word today. May we prize it as the rarest treasure in Jesus' name. Amen. So a cursory view of the Christian landscape leaves little doubt in my mind that many churches place far more importance and emphasis on programs, market-driven techniques, life coaching, psychological manipulation, than they do the gifts that our Heavenly Father has left the church to do his word, to do his work on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father has seen fit to utilize the foolishness of preaching God advance the cause of Christ. His main focus is on the word of God at the center to enliven God's people, to enliven the gathered church. But church life and missions and church planting has turned from pragmatism and I believe is turning back towards the word of God as they have seen over and over that those methods are failing. To count on man's strength, to count on man's wisdom is folly, it is foolishness. Church after church that has been built on market-driven techniques you're seeing around the world is just crumbling to pieces. Those pastors don't stand because they stand on false foundation. Those ministries fall by the wayside. But God is raising up, I believe, a generation of pastors and churches that are hungry for God's word. Sheep have been starving for far too long and they're demanding that their pastors give them food. So we praise God that that is Pine Grove Community Church, that we, we as a people are hungry. We want God to speak to us. We want the word of God, and that is who Pine Grove Community Church is, I believe. So that is our focus today, is to remind ourselves to not move from this, to not shift to other methodologies. Rather, we are called to stand on the authority of the Scripture. And that authority, number one, if you're taking notes today, that authority of the Scripture is number one over the preacher. Preachers are not called to manipulate God's eternal truths pragmatically to get what they want. We are charged with preaching the Word of God. We come having submitted to the Word. It is to change us and affect us. And that's what we see here in Thessalonians. Orthodoxy, what you believe affects how you live, orthopraxy. What you believe in your head will actually come out in your life, and out of the heart flows the issues of life. We like to be segmented. We like to live in ways that are compartmentalized, where I've got this part of my life and that part of my life. But when Jesus comes into your life, he takes it all. And he commands that every part of your life submits to the word of God. And that starts with the shepherds. Shepherds are called to keep watch over their own heart first and then their flocks. There is a, there's to be a change in our life. By your fruit you will know who is of God. We examine fruit to see if there is root in Christ. And we're called to do that to ourselves first. We see here in this passage that that Paul and the missionaries had pure motives. Their motives were right. The apostles dared to preach the word to them despite strong opposition. No matter what, they were going to preach the word. It affected them, and it affected how they preached it. 
the apostles were so convinced by the word of God that they risked a great deal to share the word of God. That obviously means that they had right motives. Somebody with wrong motives would stop preaching if it was going to cost them their life or cause them discomfort, right? And they point this out. The fact that they preached to the Thessalonican believers was strong evidence of their pure motives in teaching the truths. They were humble, it says, with the help of God. We come up here to preach with the help of God, by him and for him and for his glory. They weren't doing this on their own. They did not take the credit. All the glory is to God. In verse 3, we see also that Paul continues to detail the pure character of their motives. Many may not want to trick them. They did not have an angle. Again, many, many, it doesn't take long to see that they have an angle when preaching, when ministering, when shepherding. There's an angle. There's a trick. Well, here they're appealing to the fact that they did not. They wanted to comfort their people. They wanted to give them hope. They wanted to give them Christ. They wanted to give them the gospel, scripture. The idea in the original language of the word appeal is a preaching that is of comfort to them. To encourage them, to embolden them, to enliven them. This is an exhortation also in moral teaching. Did not spring from error. They longed to maintain the truth in its purest form. This message they preached was the gospel of God. It was not a gospel of self-help. Gospel of psychology. It was the gospel of God and for God. So in verses 2 and 3, the message that God communicated as we will examine more in verse 13, was, was this, had this appeal to it. We also see their motives were correct and their methods were also right as well. Methodology matters to God. They were not tricking, guilt tripping, they were not manipulating. They didn't use and implement the ever popular rhetorical tricks of the day. Deception is a sin. Even in winning converts, it is sin to be deceptive. Paul does mention later on, In Philippians, that there were those who preached God but from wrong motives, but he said at least they're preaching God. But he still pointed out they're preaching with wrong motives. Motives do matter. Methods matter. But he was not employing the popular rhetoric of the day. He was preaching the pure word of God. So we see here in the gospel appeal, the preaching to the Thessalonican church, the message was not false. The motives were not impure. The methods were not deceptive. In verse 4, Paul then proceeds to present his credentials as well. These credentials are not our credentials. He was an apostle. We are preachers. But Paul was still examined and approved by God to preach the gospel. Not because Paul was great, but because God was great. And the goodness of God changed him through transformation in the word. Paul was approved. Paul calls the churches to examine those who will serve as their leaders. Right through the characteristics given in Scripture. That is how we do that today. We are called by God through fasting and through prayer to identify those who have an aptitude for teaching the Bible. Not teaching their opinions and preferences, but teaching Scripture. We are called to evaluate those shepherds. In 1 Timothy 5.21, he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to maintain these principles without bias. Do nothing without partiality. These shepherds are to have a good reputation. 
do not be too quick in laying on, laying on of hands and thereby share in the sins of others. You lay your hands on someone who's not qualified, you are sharing in sin. And then he says, keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine instead because of your stomach. So obviously, Timothy was having a lot of issues doing what he's called to do to identify elders qualified. It's a big undertaking. It should move us, right? This task. Great care is to be taken when tasking men called by God to preach the word to the blood-bought people of God. This is a weighty matter. Handling God's holy word and shepherding God's people should not just be some quick snap decision. We ought to be 100% convinced. The reformer Martin Luther was shaken visibly on his way up to preach. When asked about that, he said, no, it's not because I'm scared of you. It's because I stand before God. It's his word. He did the same with the elements of the table. He would visibly shake when holding that bread and that cup before God's people. This is a weighty matter, word and sacrament. We're called to feed you with the truth of his word. We're called and entrusted to also not just give it, but live it and feel the weight of God's authority over our life. So here in verse 4, they were tested by God to bring the word. Since they were commissioned by God, their ardent desire was to serve him through feeding these dear people. He says, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Now notice with me, this is not a license to being a jerk, to just get up and be mean. It's not license, that's what some pastors may think. We're called to be winsome, to be gentle, and to be kind with God's word. Paul is in no way saying that in pleasing God, he and his companions were somehow displeasing to people. The point is this. The fundamental motivation for the ministry was to please God first, and out of that, to love neighbor as self. To lift them up better than themselves, as Christ taught us. In verse 5, Paul continues to display his integrity integrity to them. He did not flatter. He was not greedy either. Paul worked hard to not be a burden to God's people. He was not motivated by money, did not tell them what they wanted to hear in order to get money out of people. In fact, he worked very hard not to do that. Flattery reflects bad character. You are not seeing people, you're only seeing what you can get from them. That's an insult, isn't it? Be careful of flattery. Chrysostom warned that flattery was a characteristic of charlatans and the sophists. Plutarch was so concerned about flatters that he wrote a whole treatise about how to distinguish between them and their rare few true friends. As communicators of God's truth and as someone who cared well for God's people, Paul never flattered his audience. He truly loved them to the point of tears. The Thessalonians knew that well. Subsequently, they did not care about the praise of men. Some men are prone to these temptations while others are not. Pride, position, prestige, honor, and glory were all to Christ and all to God the Father. Verse 7. The word of God took root in the messengers so that they were gentle to the church, patient with the church. They were not burdensome. They were not heavy They were not authoritarian, though they still felt the weight of authority. 
They did not exercise the weight of their authority, though they could have. They saw themselves as caring for little children. Paul was like a mother caring for their children. So the word of God was not only taught by Paul, but it was accompanied by a life that that showed great care and affection as well. In verse 8, Paul was not afraid to share his love for them and with them. He loved the hearers. He loved those that he preached the word of God to. He gave both message and himself to the hearers. So the word of God is meant to knit the heart of God's people together as a faith family in a unified way. This was so important and fundamental that they risked even great hostility in the town. Worked with their own hands. They labored hard. They exhausted themselves to live out the way that God said to live in this faith community. Further evidence of this is seen in verse 9. It says they work day and night to not be a burden, giving themselves to toil and hardship. This could also be read trouble or difficulty. So we learn from this that men of God, men committed to the word of God, bound by the word, will minister even to the point of trouble and difficulty, and it won't stop them. It won't stop them. Difficulty will not stop them from continuing to give the word. John Bunyan, one of my favorite Reformed writers, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Not talking about Babe the Blue Ox. It's a different Bunyan. John Bunyan spent a great many years in jail because he would not stop preaching the word of God. I believe it was close to 15 years. 15 years. John Owen absolutely loved John Bunyan. Would go and visit with him. And ask him, why, why, would, why would you continue? He said, I will not stop preaching. I am bound by my conscience. The state does not have authority over that to dictate that. Right? He was called by God. Difficulty will not stop men who are bound by the word of God. My boys are learning about William Tyndale. I'm very thankful they, they attend Armas Day Academy. And uh, very much appreciate what they're learning there. They're, they're learning about William Tyndale, the morning star of the Reformation. Excuse me, John Wycliffe. Not Tyndale, what do I think? John Wycliffe, wrong guy. John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into the tongue of the people so that they could understand it and read it for themselves, and it cost him his life. Cost him his life to do that. He knew that was going to get him in a lot of trouble. So, Difficulty will not stop, and often it will actually spur on the word of God. We see that the word of God scattered because of persecution. Paul, just like verse 5, continues to appeal to witness again that he was blameless, he was holy and righteous, and again it was because the word of God affected him. It was not because of behavior modification, it was because of the power of God through the gospel. He believed the message that he preached. The word of God affected the way Paul lived among them. Paul and his companions were holy and acted righteously in their dealings with them. And he also not only dealt with them like a mother, but notice also he talks about being a father to them as well. The motherly side is gentle and caring. The fatherly side is the respect that comes with it. 
Paul desired to model that protection over the church, to offer uh, not only welfare, to provide for the church, which is the fatherly side, to provide for them, to feed them, to provide them with food and shelter and clothing. But he wanted to give them protection as well, to protect them morally and to show them the paths to a moral life, a holy life, one that honors God. That's what fathers are called to do with their children, to show them what to do and not do, how to live correctly. The capstone is really what I want to get into today, and that's verse 13, and that's you. We are called to stand before you as pastors and share with you before God what we are called to do, which is to be bound by the word of God, to feel the weight of authority of God's word on our life, But you should also feel that too. In verse 13, we've talked about the authority of God over the one giving the word of God with great joy. But here we turn our attention now to the hearer of the word. The hearer. The one who receives God's word. Many times it says in the scriptures to take heed what you have heard. And you know know this example. Um, Some of you in your home... You'll be talking to your spouse, and they're sitting on their chair, maybe their paper, and they're going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. And you go, okay, what did I just say? Well, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't know what you said. You heard wah, 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 but you didn't get the message, right? It's Charlie Brown in the classroom. To take heed what you hear is is to... Listen in such a way that you can repeat it back to somebody. In fact, that's a good art of listening. I'm trying to learn how to listen better. And they say, be listening to what they're saying and then maybe repeat it back to them. So what you're saying is dot, dot, dot. It's this. Just to make sure that you heard. And then that lets them know that you heard them. That's the idea here is take heed what you hear. Make sure that you are acting upon that which you are hearing. Let it change you. Accept it. Be moved by the message. So that's what we're talking about here. The authority of God over them. The one who receives the word must take it in such a way that they act upon it. Pay attention to what you have heard or learned, in other words. Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away. You can drift away. There's no shortage of churches that have drifted away because they left the anchor of God's word. It can even happen in churches where men are faithful in preaching. The people can drift because they say, I don't want that anymore. That can't happen. We are called to warn that can happen because it's true. If it's written there, it's written there for a reason. Because it happened back then, we should not be so arrogant that it can't happen again. Take caution, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is your salvation to continue in that which you have heard. Continue. Perseverance of the saints is a real doctrine. It's in the scriptures. Paul said, I must continue lest I become a castaway, right? Let us be warned. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that faith must go on and on. 
how we hear matters greatly. There is great responsibility that is placed upon the hearer as well as the giver to accept what is true and right. Not just anything. Be a Berean. Check to make sure that what's being preached is proper and true. Ask questions. Wrestle with the scriptures in a proper way. At Pine Grove Community Church, we have a congregation that is hungry for the word of God, wants to learn the word, and desires to live by it. We must keep this protected and pray for this to continue. So in verse 13, Paul is giving thanks that they received the word of God. Paul is delighted in the way that these believers had accepted the word of God. The reason Paul knew that they had accepted to it, accepted it, submitted to it, received it, was because of the way, notice the language, it was at work in them. He could see the fruit. He could see that their root was in Christ. Because what was springing up was that they were continuing in that which they had learned. It was bearing fruit in their life. They accepted this message as the word of God. It was continuing in them. They accepted it initially as an act of faith. In justification, they were saved by it. And even in hardship and persecution, in their sanctification, they continued in it. Which is a sign that they were justified by it. That's the book of James, by the way. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves you is accompanied by a life of gospel fruit, right? That again comes from God through his word. So don't get a big head, right? They were continuing in that faith. This message was not a philosophical discourse on a virtuous life. If you want that, go read Plato. Or Joel Osteen. This was the word of God. It bound them. They loved the truth. So not only do we cling to the preached word, the hearing of it, but we must also accept the visible illustrations as well. What visible illustrations has God gifted the church? We have the centrality of word, but we also have the gift of sacrament as well. Some call it ordinances, same idea. The Lord gifted the church with baptism. He said, go into all the world preaching the gospel. What goes right along with that? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then continue to teach them all my commands, right? This is embedded in the Great Commission. Christ's last request is to be the first mission of the church, that we are to be the church to the world, that more may be grafted in by grace alone, through Christ and through the preached word. But with that is baptism. So we have baptism. And again, that is one of the marks of the true church. We have baptism and we have the Lord's table. These are visible illustrations. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We hear his word, but we're also called to see it. We're called to taste it. We're to be reminded of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ who is head. The sacraments point to the giver of that sacrament. We also have the Lord's table. So baptism, we're, we're walking through that with the elders and as a team trying to learn more about how to teach on that and how to, to bring that to the forefront in this church with baptism, but also the Lord's table. And Pastor Jeremy teaches extensively on that every time we come to the Lord's table so we know why we're doing this. We have baptism, which is the sign, the outward sign of what God does inwardly, but we also have the Lord's table with the bread and the cup. 
to remind us that we need him and we need his blood and we need to be reminded of the gospel and who we are in Christ and also to look forward to that future, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's also a picture of the future, of where we're going. So it's the past, what Christ has done. It's the present, what Christ is doing in and through us. And it's the future to show us where we're going. We're the bride of Christ. And we're welcome to that table. So I just want to ask some questions today. Much more could be said, but I do not have time to delve into that. But what we learn today is, in this passage, as it says here, They accepted it. Who accepted it? The church did, right? You have a choice, don't you? To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16 says. Let it dwell in you richly. So you have a choice. You have to decide to listen with a right heart, to ask God to give you a heart that will receive his food, to receive the word of God, to appreciate the sacraments, the Lord's table. Baptism, to remember what Christ has done for you. Remember your baptism. But Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You have the choice. We are commanded to submit to it. Both the giver and the receiver to submit to it. It's a choice. So is the word of God performing a work in you? I want you to ask that. Or are you resting on things that you learned 30 years ago? And you're like, ah, I'm good. Every one of us are called to be constantly in God's word, both in our gathering as a church, but also in your home. Fathers, you are priests of your homes. You're called to feed your children the word of God, to pray with them, to challenge them. Mothers, you are called to reinforce that direction, to support your husband, to support that mission of the home, to be a godly home. Are you doing that? Is the word of God at work in you? Are you regularly before the face of God with an open Bible? praying through the scriptures. So as you examine, are you struggling with faith to believe the word really works? Are you hopeless? Have you given up? Some of you may be having a conversation in your head right now, and I know that because I do that. Oh, I've been struggling with this for so long, I don't know if I can ever get over this. I just keep falling back into this same sin. I just keep doing this. I keep doing that. Okay, who's lying to you? We are more than conquerors through Christ. He's called us to conquer through the word of God. Are you struggling maybe with self-control, food addictions, not sleeping enough, maybe too much TV? Do you struggle to master yourself? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Are you depressed, complaining, short-tempered, snippy, Joyless, negative in all your perceptions, a.k.a. a sourpuss. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Have you recently succumbed to temptation, sexual misconduct, lust? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Are you in the midst of a great trial or tribulation, tired, worn out, becoming a bit hopeless, losing that that glimmer of light. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you, dear brother and sister, give yourself to the sufficiency of God's word? 
Do you remember those sacraments? Look forward to them. Do you recount them often? This is God's means to transformation as it all points to the glory of the Father and the goodness of his Son, Jesus Christ, in the gift of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you. We are weak, desperate, joyless people, thankless often, struggle with our sin. We're proud, we're arrogant, and we think we know better. Yet you have given us everything that we need as revealed in your word as we look to Christ on every page. Redemption from Genesis to Revelation for your people. So, Father, may we give ourselves simply to the word of God. Bind our hearts to Christ through every page of Scripture. Breathe in us that life, the meaning of Scripture, the meaning of who you are, displaying all that you are in your glory for the good of your people. May we be bound by your word. May we as pastors, the elders, the deacons, the teachers here, the women's ministries, the Awanas, every aspect of this ministry and our people, would we give ourselves to Scripture? Remember the gift of the sacraments that preach to us visibly, the beauty and the glory and the victory that is yours through Jesus Christ for us. May we rest in that, embolden our faith, give us joy and a hope, set our mind on the future where we're going. In Christ's name, amen.